may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. I want to wish a happy Father's Day to all the dads in the room. I hope you have a very blessed and wonderful day. The same is true for Father's Day as could be said of Mother's Day. And that is, uh, you dads deserve more than one day. But we want to wish you a happy Father's Day. Let's take a poll. How many of you have gotten socks already? Anybody? <laughs> How about a tie? Any ties? Underwear? Don't tell us. I, I'll just brag for a moment. I got some really awesome gifts for my Father's Day presents that I'm really excited about. My, my boys knocked it out of the park. So... Matthew chapter 13, and we want to look this morning at the parable of the net, verses 47 through 50, verses 47 through 50, and I want you to think about what is the most valuable possession you have, like item, not a thing. Uh, you can say out loud your spouse or your children, but internally, what's the most value, I'm just kidding, what's the, the possession that you have that really is worth the most money. If you have that item in your mind and you know what it is, maybe it's your home, maybe it's a piece of jewelry from a family member, uh, maybe it's uh, something that was left to you by a family member, whatever it is, I want you to think about that item, okay? Now I want you to think about where that item is right now. Most likely, if it is a valuable treasure, it's not out in the front yard for anybody to take. It's probably under lock and key. It's probably secure. We wouldn't leave out our valuables for anybody to get. We lock our doors. The truth is we have treasures, but... There is a sense in which the world we live in, we cannot openly and fully and consistently enjoy them the way we might like to. If it's a treasure that can be taken or stolen, there's always the threat that somebody would take it. If it's a treasure that is irreplaceable, there's always the danger that it might be lost. I remember many years ago, my dad had a ring from his dad. And it was lost. And you can imagine the, the toll that that takes to lose something that you had from your father who had passed away. And then it's lost and it's never recovered again. The truth is we have treasures that we cannot enjoy openly all the time. And last week we talked about the main idea of the sermon was that the kingdom of heaven is the truest treasure and we possess it as Jesus Christ. You remember that. We, we possess that great treasure because of Jesus. But the reality is, is we understand that that treasure that we've been given, we can't enjoy it fully, consistent, completely, wholeheartedly today, can we? It's a treasure that we have and we can enjoy. But at the same time, we cannot enjoy it all the time. Why? Well, there's sin in the world still. There's misery. 
There's injustice, there's persecution, there's evil, there's idolatry. The wicked flourish in many places. There are places on the earth where to enjoy the treasure openly and consistently is to invite and incite violence against your own life and family. So there's all these reasons why we cannot enjoy the kingdom in full. Joy and sorrow, life and death, comfort and pain, blessing and curse. I think it's fair to say that most days are mixed with a little bit of both, right? In the same day, you might be told Happy Father's Day, but also have to deal with something like your car breaking down. You may get to spend time with your grandkids, but at the same time, realize that you're under the weather or that there's some major issue you have to... We, we are living in this, this, this in-between world, but I want you to know, there is coming a day, a day when the and is removed... It's not going to be joy and sorrow. It'll be just joy. It's not going to be life and death. It'll be just life. It's not going to be comfort and pain. It'll be just comfort. Not blessing and curse. Just blessing. I cannot wait for the day when there's only joy and life and blessing and comfort. In our text this morning, Jesus is giving us a parable to encourage us that while the kingdom is coming and while the kingdom is flourishing and spreading and while it is a great treasure that has been given to us, we still live in this in-between time, but we ought not lose heart because there is a day coming. He gives a parable in our text this morning that follows the parable about the treasure. And I think it's important for us to read this in the context. Because if we separate what we're going to talk about this morning from the parable of the treasure. Uh, we might miss the point. But let's look at the parable. In verses 47 through 50. Talk about what it means. Interpret it. Understand it. And then we'll talk about what it means for us today. So beginning in verse 47. It says again, so Jesus is telling another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a large net thrown into the sea. It collected every kind of fish. And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down, and gathered the good fish into containers. But threw out the worthless ones. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will go out, separate the evil from the righteous, and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Father, help us to see what you would have us to see. Holy Spirit, help us to see what you mean when you inspired Matthew to write these words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The kingdom of heaven has been compared to many things, and here it is compared to a large net. And what Jesus actually described is a large net that had these buoys on the top, and you had large weighted stones on the bottom. And what you would do is you would drop the bottom of the net, it would sink down, and it would be a big square net, and then you would pull it by four ropes to the shore, 
and hope to catch a lot of fish that way. You're covering essentially from top to bottom with a fishing net. Now, this net, Jesus says, catches all kinds of fish, every kind of fish. There's no net that catches only one kind of fish. And so this parable talks about gathering all these kinds of fish. But then Jesus turns and he says, And when it was full, they dragged it ashore, sat down and gathered the good fish and separated the worthless ones. So there comes a drawing. There comes the moment where it's time to pull it in, right? It's time to, to, to take the catch and separate. And Jesus says, so it will be. Here's the point. It will be this way at the end of the age. There is coming a day when the net is drawn. Sometimes we might think and we might feel and, and the world might tell us. Peter says they mock us for where is the promise of his coming? You keep saying the net's going to be drawn, but it's been about 2,000 years. That's a long time. But there is coming a day when the net is drawn. There is a day when this age comes to a close. And so the focus of the parable of the net describes the situation that exists when the last judgment takes place. When, when that final close of the age happens, the kingdom comes in its fullness, and then in the last judgment, the net is drawn. The kingdom then embraces the good fish, and the bad fish are all drawn up in this judgment. But then in one final sweep of the net, it sorts them out. When the last day of judgment happens, everyone's going to be caught up in it. There's going to be no escaping. If you're here this morning and you think you might escape the judgment, do not be so sure. When the age closes, when Jesus comes back, when that great day takes place, there will be no escaping. Every fish, good and bad, will have to face that day. And when that day happens, Jesus says, the evil will be taken from among the righteous. The day of judgment is coming, and when this age closes, the unrighteous will be separated from among the righteous. The language is very clear here that it's the unrighteous who are taken out. So something we need to correct maybe in our understanding of what happens in the end is not believers are taken out of the earth and we live a disembodied existence on the cloud. No, when Jesus comes back and the judgment takes place, believers are not removed from the earth. It's the wicked and the righteous. I meant the wicked and the unrighteous. You heard me right. I correct. The wicked and the unrighteous. And so they are removed from among the righteous. So if you think of a salvation as, as escaping earth, I, I hate to tell you, if that's what you've understood salvation to be, you're going to be really shocked when you find yourself back on earth. The Bible ends with a new heaven and a new earth. It's a restored creation, a greater creation. It's a, it, it is a, a lot of times you'll hear people say the garden is restored. We're taken back to the garden, but it's not even that. It's better than that. It's not just the garden. It's the whole earth fills with the glory of the knowledge, with the knowledge of the glory of God. So the unrighteous are taken out. They are separated and the righteous inherit the earth. 
And so our hope is not to be taken out of the world, but that sin and evil and wickedness would be removed. So understand there's coming a day where you as a Christian, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will know what it's like to live on this planet without sin, without evil, without a divided heart. But the unrighteous, Jesus says, are compared to the worthless fish. Now this isn't to say... That they don't have value. Every human being has value in the eyes of God. They're created in the image of God. But it is to say, when, Jesus, when we talk about fish being good and bad, just think of it this way. There are some fish that you do eat, and there's some fish you don't eat. Right? There's just some fish you don't even want to bother with. They, they serve no purpose. And so when Jesus is telling the parable of good fish and bad fish, it's in the context of what fish will you eat and what fish will you not eat. But in here, when he talks about the unrighteous, he's saying that those are the ones that are thrown out like the worthless fish. And it says they're thrown into a blazing furnace where they will be weeping. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the righteous inherit the earth, but the wicked are sent to hell, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus calls it a place. And so let me remind you that hell is not a metaphor. Hell is not just an image. Hell is a literal place. It is a place where those who die apart from Jesus Christ spend eternity. And Jesus calls it a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we've talked about this before, but this is a place of misery. It's a place where anger runs unimpeded. Can you imagine how miserable it would be for your anger to be multiplied exponentially day after day? And there's nothing you can do about it. If if the blessedness of heaven is joy and the blessedness of salvation is joy, I've talked about this with some of you before about what heaven will be like and how sweet it's going to be. There's, there's not really a sense in which we... Sometimes we think we won't see the passing of time, but I don't know if that's true because we're time-bound creatures. I don't know how we exist outside of time. So let's just assume for the sake of argument that we still understand the passing of time in the new heavens and the new earth. Every day, your joy will be completely full, will grow exponentially every second because you are beholding God, you are with God, you are full of the Holy Spirit. So understand this. I think it's safe to say that every second, you will experience the maximum joy you've ever known. Every second, you'll be thinking, there's no way it can get better. And then the next second, it's increased infinitely. And you, it, you can't even wrap your mind around it. And then you'll say, there's no way it gets better. And it just keeps getting better and better and better and better and better for all eternity. Because that is a joy that is rooted in God. You cannot exhaust or find the depths or reach the end of joy in God, can you? No. 
So heaven and the new heavens and the new earth is the experience of your joy being multiplied, doubled every possible second to be the greatest joy you've ever known. And that goes on into eternity. Now, praise the Lord. But what's the flip side? Your anger festers. And every second is the most angry you've ever been. And you think, I can't get any angrier. But then the next second, it multiplies. And you get angrier and angrier. You get more miserable and more miserable. You weep more. Your despair multiplies every single second. And that's for eternity. Jesus says the wicked are separated and sent to the place of a blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You might be asking, how could a God where we've talked about loves people and a God who values people send people to a place like that? Maybe you struggle and say, I can't believe that that there's a God who is love but sends people to a place like that. There's a lot could be said here. And if you have that question, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. I would love to talk with you. Answer a question or two. But, but maybe we misunderstand when we say a God of love. How could a God of love send people like that? How could, how could a God of love judge people like that and send people like that well, number one, I would say it's precisely because he's a God of love. If somebody came up to someone you loved and assaulted them, would not your love provoke an anger within you? If somebody said something crossword or did something inappropriate to my wife, I would not say, well, you know, we'll just agree to let bygones be bygones. No, there's, an, there's a righteous anger. There is a, a holy good anger because something I love has been attacked or something I love has been distorted. And so we have people who attack God's creation, who attack God's image bearers, who seek to destroy that which God created and declared was good. So yes, it's possible for God to be both loving and to send people to hell. But you might say that doesn't seem fair. That he would send people to hell. What choice did they have? The Bible says that's the exact choice they've made. You see to reject Jesus Christ. And the salvation offered in him. Is not to reject Jesus and then somehow be neutral. To reject Jesus is to choose hell. The Bible says that we know that there's a creator. We see the evidence all around us. But Romans 1 says that we suppress that truth because we're sinners. We rather believe a lie. We rather worship the creation rather than the creator. So every single person that's in hell is there because they chose to be. God simply gives them that which they have chosen. 
It is true that Jesus is warning about judgment. I want you to be warned here. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, be warned. There is coming a day of judgment. And if you are not found in Jesus Christ, if you're not resting in Jesus Christ, if you're not trusting in Him, when that day comes, it will be too late. So don't wait. Don't wait. Come to Christ today and be forgiven. Come to Jesus, understanding that you sinned, you were separated from God, you deserved hell, but then rest in what Jesus did for you. Do you know what he did for you? He died on the cross. He took the punishment you deserved. He exhausted every single flame of condemnation against you, such that if you trust in him, whenever... You go before him, whether it's when you die or in the day of judgment. You won't know condemnation. You'll know life and joy and peace. But I think that's a secondary application of what Jesus is saying. Because again, if we take this parable in the context that Matthew puts it in, he puts it right after a parable about treasure. And so I think as believers, we are to read this parable and understand one very basic truth. The main idea I want you to take away this morning is this. One day, believers will enjoy the kingdom in perfect, present fullness. One day, believers will enjoy the kingdom in perfect, present fullness. Jesus says, you have the truest treasure. And then this week, he says, and one day, you'll be able to enjoy it like you were made to enjoy it. One day, you'll be able to enjoy that treasure without fear. You'll be able to enjoy it without doubt. You'll be able to live in it, to breathe it in. Imagine what it's going to be like to breathe in new creation air. When you step into to glory and that first, that first breath you take where the air of heaven fills every, every pocket in your lungs. When all of a sudden those pains in your legs aren't there anymore. When all of a sudden all the cricks and the knocks And the ticks. And you stand upright maybe for the first time in a long time. Jesus says, believer, I've given you a treasure. And I know it feels like you barely get to enjoy it now. But there is coming a day. When it will be all you know. All day. Every day. So what are we to do with this? First of all, we always have hope. There is no reason for us as Christians to be hopeless. Because there is coming a day. That is what hope is, right? It is a hope that looks forward to that day. It is a hope that looks ahead, trusting. So we always have hope in trusting ourselves to that day. But number two... 
In light of this parable, I think we ought to remind ourselves of the end of all people who die apart from Christ. We need to look at the people around us and ask a question of every single person we see. Where are they headed? They're headed to one of two places. They're either headed for life or death, blessedness or condemnation. We cannot, do not let the comfort that you receive lull you into a sense of apathy. I've I've got my bases covered. I know where I'm going. You should be doubly motivated. Not only should you be motivated because you know where they're going, but you should be motivated because of what you've experienced. That which is good and pleasant and enjoy, that you enjoy, you, you naturally express your affections. You talk about it. And so this passage, I think, ought to challenge us. Are we sharing the way we should? Are, are we moved by what we read in this? Number three, we need to thank and praise God for His grace in our life. Both initial and continual. What do I mean by that? Well, when we read this parable, Jesus talks about separating the righteous from the wicked. But here's what we have to always remember. That we were born sinners. Which means what we deserve because, as, because we're sinners is to be thrown out with the wicked. The only hope we have of being included with the good fish is Jesus. Because it's the righteous. And we have no righteousness in and of ourselves. Righteousness that we need is given to us by faith in Christ. So understand this, all of you that said amen just a moment ago about that day that's coming, do not forget that the only reason you have that hope is because Jesus died for you. That he took what you deserved. All the blessedness All the hope of enjoying the kingdom in its fullness is only possible because of Jesus. So that's the initial grace, but then it's the sustaining grace. We thank God for this promise here that while we live day to day, while we experience the world we live in, while there are some days you just stand back and you go, what in the world is going on in the world? We have this promise that there's coming a day. And that grace sustains us. So we are to always have hope. We need to see the people around us and be moved by either their condemnation or by our blessedness. We thank God and praise Him for the grace in our life. But the fourth, very quickly, that I want to say is We ought to cultivate our enjoyment here on earth. Although we enjoy the kingdom in its fullness in that day, that doesn't mean we can't enjoy it here and now. 
And as I prayed about something, I, I wanted to say something to dads this morning. And I didn't want it to be the typical, you know, moms are great, dads are terrible. You know, Mother's Day, Father's Day thing. And, and as I thought about this application, I think this is what I want to say to you dads this morning and say it to myself. What if we sought to cultivate our children's enjoyment of the Lord Jesus, of His kingdom, while we can? What do I mean by that? Dad, do they see that you delight in Jesus? Do they, do they see that you enjoy reading Scripture? You enjoy praying. That's part of it. But this, what I really want to say to you dads is I think our enjoyment of the kingdom, I think, is, is way more, on that day, it's way more broader than we sometimes think. In short, dads, play with your kids. Have fun. Do things that are fun. Do things that, that, that make you laugh, that make you smile, because that is what we'll be doing in heaven. That's what we'll be doing in the new heaven and in the new earth. We will be enjoying all that God has created and giving Him glory. And so what if cultivating a taste for heaven in your children looks like this? It's simply enjoying the things that God has made with them. Having fun with them. Smiling, laughing, wrestling, all those things that, that most of you dads, you already do, but, but then... When those times come where you think, I, I don't have time for this, I, don't, I, don't, I can't do this, I'm too tired, or whatever it is, think of it as, I want to cultivate a hunger for heaven, a hunger for joy, to give them a taste of what it's going to be like. Now, you'll, you'll fall short, I fall short, but if we want to give them a taste of what enjoying the kingdom looks like, it's hard for children to understand what heaven is like when they're living in hell. It's hard for children to understand how a heavenly father connects with them and loves them when we're so disconnected. So dads, play with your kids. Do fun things. I feel like I've still drifted into the, the guilting you, but that's not my... Here's what I'm doing. I'm giving you permission to do all the fun things you want to do. Not that you need my permission, but, but, but do the fun things. Do the fun things. Cultivate a, a taste and a hunger for joy, for laughter, for pleasure, and, and all done for the glory of God. The main idea is one day believers will enjoy the kingdom in perfect present fullness.
I hope you look forward to that day and find great hope in it because I know I do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the hope that we have that sustains us, that whatever happens to us in this life, in this world, we know that that day is coming and that day will be greater than we could possibly imagine. And Lord, I pray for each father here, oh Lord, that we would, every father in this room knows that we don't get it right. We know that we mess up. We know that we're imperfect. And yet, God, you've called us to a great and wonderful calling. Lord, help us as fathers to be present, to be attentive, to be involved. But God, more than anything, that we would be dads who point our children to Jesus. That we would acknowledge when we've wronged our wives, when we've wronged our children, that we would go and apologize to them. Lord, I ask that you would help each believer here, God, with the struggles that they've brought to find great hope and encouragement in that day when we breathe in new creation air, when we see a new creation earth, when we see the face of our Lord Jesus Christ and behold your glory forever. Lord, we look forward to that day with great hope and expectation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.